Hello, and welcome to the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast we started because we had no airshows to review. I'm Tom Jones, and with me today is... Dominic Vickery, Dom Vickery on our forum. And um, we've got a really special guest on the podcast today, uh, John Nicholl, who um, I'm sure many of our audience will know. Um, he's the author of the new Tornado book, which we'll be discussing. Um, John was um, in the RAF. Um, uh, he was commissioned as a navigator in 1986. He served with 15 squadron flying tornadoes and flew in Operation Desert Storm, or up Granby in the Gulf War and uh, was unfortunately shot down um, and was the author of many successful books um, including Tornado Down where he described his experience, um, Spitfire and Lancaster both have come out uh, recently and of course his new book Tornado. Um, so John uh, for, our, for, the, for our audience tell us about sort of Tornado itself. Hey, Tom. Uh, Dom, how are you doing, guys? Thanks for having me on. Um, so Tornado in the Eye of the Storm, the new book, uh, came out of a dinner I was at uh, for the 25th anniversary reunion of the uh, Gulf War Prisoners of War uh, five years ago. Um, and uh, we had it was a big reunion. So we had our friends there. Uh, and everything else. There was, you know, there's only a handful of RAF prisoners of war and a couple of the special forces guys. Uh, and after dinner and a few beers and um, a few more beers and a bit of port, um, <laughs> we were kind of nattering. And what transpired was none of us had ever really spoken about our experiences before. Now, I say that many of your listeners will know that I wrote my book with my pilot, John Peters, Tornado Down, 30 years ago. But I didn't know what happened to my mates, my really good mates. I didn't know what happened to them. Um, and nattering to them over a beer, and really more importantly, Tom, nattering to their wives and to some of their kids, because their kids were now adults, mm. it transpired that I didn't know what had happened. And I wanted to tell their stories. And so, you know, I, so Tornado in the Eye of the Storm, as opposed to Tornado Down, my first book just about me and John Peters, the, to the story of the Tornado Force and their families was born in a bar in the RAF Club in London five years ago. Um, and it tells the story, tells the story of the jet a little bit, its conception and how it came into being. But it, the concentration is on the war itself in 1991, what the guys went through and what the families went through back home. It, and it's um, in previous interviews, you've sort of described yourself with with your author's hat on as not so much a nuts and bolts guy but someone who who enjoys the or I say enjoys someone who is um very interested in in the human element of it and 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 I think that comes through in the book was that important for you to sort of draw out it's really it was really important to me I mean if you if you've read my other books you know my last I've, I've, tornado is my 17th book who would have thought 30 years ago when somebody was kind of kicking seven bells out of me in a bloody, in a cell in Baghdad, that I'd be on book number 17. But I, my two previous books that were both kind of quite successful, Spitfire and Lancaster, um, they, were, they were not about the nuts and the bolts and the rivets, though I covered it. But the whole point is that if you Google or, or Amazon 
search Spitfire in Lancaster, you'll find quite literally a thousand books about the aircraft. Mm. Everything that has been written about every single rivet, every single engine, every single propeller has been written before. And I want to tell the human story, what it was like for the men and the women to be there. And that's what I wanted to do in Tornado. So yes, the nuts and bolts of the Tornado are there. It's conception, what it was designed to do, how it was built, how it worked, the weapons we carried. Mm. But 80, 80% of the story is the experiences of the 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 men. On, and it was men then. I mean, you know, the Air Force banned women from flying back in the 80s and 90s. Quite rightly now, women are on the front line mm. proving themselves to be better than many of us in actual fact. <laughs> but then it was, but then it was, it was, it was all men uh, flying on the front line. And Tornado tells their story, but their story is interspersed with the stories of their loved ones at home. And whether that's a mum or a dad or a, a teenage daughter being woken up to be told her dad's been shot down and they don't know if he's alive or dead, or whether it's uh, uh, a wife at home uh, listening for the footsteps coming up the path and that knock on the door, it's their story. And that's really what I want to tell. For me, the human stories are much more important than the nuts and bolts. Absolutely, yeah. And um, uh, referencing the teenage daughter there, are you, you talk about mm. Kirsty Stewart. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, she, she herself is now uh, or, or has been um, in the RAF, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Kirsty was thirteen, and uh, so I've known Kirsty uh, for many years. <laughs> she was thirteen uh, when her dad was shot down, and maybe we'll talk about some of those stories. Uh, later on but she eventually followed her dad's footsteps into the air force yeah. she became a qualified flying instructor a qfi she became a tornado pilot and in the last chapter of the book i talk about the story coming full circle yeah. and yeah. kirsty's story about it which for me was almost heartrending. and kirsty became the first female red hour so a trailblazer and she was an uh, awarded an mbe in the queen's birthday honors list just last weekend so oh so, she oh fant- i didn't yeah, know that yeah. fantastic yeah so <laughs> because of the work that she does with young people yeah. and trying to get them into engineering get them into flying so you know so she kind of says oh john i kind of look up to you now this is ridiculous Kirsty. <laughs> you are now uh an icon of aviation and more importantly an icon of female aviation but let me maybe we'll talk about one of those stories a bit later well we talk about these stories you know even in the start i think it's the epilogue and i don't i don't propose to go you know yeah. bit by bit but i just i i just found that the start of it so hard hitting it's i think in the first or second paragraph it talks about um uh, Nigel Elston and, and, yep. and Max Collier sadly um, uh, crashing yep. and, 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 and passing away. I mean, that's a that's a tough start to a to a tome, um, and it sort of set a graver tone across across the rest of the book. It, I mean, was that sort of deliberate, or was that just how when you look back on it, you know, thirty years ago, that's where your your mind goes to first is, is those friends that you lost. I think that it was really important to try to 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 hit people hard yeah. with the reality of what flying the tornado meant. You know, I've said it before. Um, we were Cold War warriors, Tom. We 
I, I, was, I say, I never expected to go to war. And I think, you know, when you read the backstories of some of the people as the book moves on in the first couple of chapters, very few people thought we would go to war in a tornado. The tornado was a Cold War aircraft. It was designed to hold back the Soviet advance during the Cold War in the 1970s and the 1980s until the Americans could get in and save the day. And if we couldn't do that, we were... Uh, practiced, rehearsed and experienced in the use of nuclear weapons. And that's what we were going to do. We were going to use tactical nuclear strikes to hold back a Soviet advance. And so when you look at it in those bald, cold, brutal terms, the notion of going to war in a desert two and a half thousand miles away was not something I ever comprehended. And so when it happened, there was two emotions. One emotion was uh, excitement, no doubt about it. We were like firefighters who'd never been to a blaze. We were like paramedics that had never been to a road accident. We trained, we were good, we were highly prepared, but we'd never done it for real. And this, and when we got there, and on the first few days, the first few hours, when people started to realise what this all meant, and when they saw what they were facing, the, the, the deadly fire they were facing, for me, set, tell, saying that up front, telling that out loud, people were dying from moment one and that was really important to take say you then describe yourself in the third person which i actually think worked really really well sort of quite quite appropriate there's a lot of this there was a lot of discussion about that (laughs) you know my first people said you have to appear and say i and this is what happened to me and i said it just won't work because we've got kind of what 10 15 main characters mm. uh, acr- across the globe everybody from sir john major our prime minister general norman schwarzkopf all the way down to little old fat geordie bloke john nickel and mums and dads and me suddenly appearing in the first person was not going to work and so it was really important that i was i am just a passing character somebody who skips in and out of the book whilst and because every time i appear people are reacting to what happened to me and that was really important for me to tell their stories rather than to me try and tell my story again. And th- and, and that's sort of um, something that struck me, just, just going back to what you were saying a, a minute ago about uh, you never expected, you know, you, you've been planning that Cold War mentality. Yeah. Uh, extreme low level flying in, in, in Germany. Um, and then suddenly you were at um, Dharan and flying low level over the desert doing, uh, you know, um, stuff that even the Americans were blushing at um, and y- you talk about yourself in the third person and you, and you say there, there was a moment where it just hit you I think y- you had reached a bit of a boiling point with John Peters in yeah. your room and you just went out for a run and you stared out over the sea and it, it just hit you do you think that all of uh, all of those guys had similar sort of moments of just like an epiphany like suddenly we're here suddenly it's real I think that everybody had it in different ways. So we were flying from Bahrain. Dharan was the Saudi Oh, sorry, place. yeah. No, no, it's fine. It, Bahrain was the place to be because it was a, uh, a very liberal island. You could drink, you could drink there, so we, I think it says. We had all of the things that you need for a proper military deployment. No military accommodation, so we were living in the five-star Sheraton Hotel. Uh, bars, clubs, nightclubs, beer. Uh, um, Gulf Air, the state airline, had, had based most of its air hostess Cadre in our hotel, so it was a terrible place to go. <laughs> You're to. really selling it. <laughs> it was, but you know, as time went on, we 
I think in some ways it was difficult. And it, when you read the book, you will find that some of the guys in Dharan and especially in Tabuk, and they were in the middle of the desert with nothing. Mm. They said that whilst they were jealous at first of us in Bahrain, they realised that where they were was actually better because they were totally militarised, no interruptions, no media. We had the media living in our hotel. Uh, and it became, and certainly I think in, I don't think anybody would do that again the way that we did it then. And people did start in the maybe two to three days before the conflict to think, wow, this is, this is real. There's a very real chance that some of us sitting in this room today are not going to make it home. And a number of those in the room didn't make it home. Yeah. And you also talk about the the crews um i i wrote oh uh, mike toft for example getting him getting himself getting himself a permanent commission because he realized mm-hmm. that if he passed away uh on the four-year commission w- w- his wife would only get two times his salary but on a yeah. permanent he'd get four times his salary i mean that must have been a real uh, how do you have that conversation with families and friends <sighs> I think you have to be brutal and I think you have to be honest. Some people did, some people didn't. Almost everybody wrote last letters and so I'd written a sequence of letters mm-hmm. and every, most military people do this now. You know, so it says, if you are reading this letter, I'm dead. And then it's, it, it kind of, it's a, uh, don't be sad, uh, get on with your life. And if it's to your wife, almost everybody said, do not feel guilty about moving on and meeting up with somebody else. Don't feel guilty about it, I want you to move on, I want you to be happy. To your mum, to your you you would write a sequence of letters saying, I'm gone, please move on. And you had to have those conversations. And so for Tofty, he did all of that and he wanted to make sure that his wife would be well looked after. And so some people took out extra extra life insurance. Uh, some and Tofty made sure that he signed, he engaged for a permanent commission, so his wife would get a full pension, uh, and uh, she would get more money. And that's the brutal practicality of war. You've got a uh, a twenty five million pound tornado over there, and you've got a pile of forms over here that need to be filled in. And that's just the reality of warfare. Yeah, it's it's just the energy of that sort of. Yeah, I don't want to recite all of the stories because, but it is it's really almost um, morbidly thrilling in a way because he's obviously uh, a tofty if I can call him. I've never met the guy. Obviously. He won't mind. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, he's practicing really hard. You know, extreme low level stuff, and then at the same time he's running in and chasing. He's saying, "Where's my commission? Where's this?" And, yeah. and I think it was approved. You know, just a couple of weeks before it was. Yeah. Before it. You know, before it after happened. after he threatened the clerk with his personal weapon. <laughs> In, yeah. on a Sunday in je- on a Sunday in, je- in jest I have to say and I say it's really quite interesting so I have I never I, this is my 17th book and I have never said to people uh, okay I, I'm, I'm going to I interview them and I, sometimes for two hours sometimes for five hours sometimes four or five times and I've never said to anybody I'm going to just check that you're happy with what I say because I never I would never lie I would never uh, misrepresent something but I don't like saying to somebody do you like the way I've written this because somebody said oh I didn't quite mean it that way but I did say to Tofty I said Tofty you've just told me that you threatened an RAF serviceman with a with a, a, 
a Walther PP high power. Are you sure? <laughs> and he said, yeah, and I've written it in that way that he walked in and he kind of took his weapon out, put it on his corporal. Where the hell is my phone commission? But it's, it was a different... You would, can you imagine some of that would now be the front page of the damn sun now? RAF officer threatened me with a loaded pistol. But it was a different time then and kind of that's just the way things were. Maybe a morbid question from me, and you know, feel feel free to not answer this. You mentioned that you you'd wrote letters there when you were back home, when you know dust was settled. Did you ever show your wife that letter? Or no, really, very good question, Dom. So I wasn't married then, uh, but my I wrote letters to my um, then girlfriend, to uh, my mum and uh, dad, and I never showed them it. No, it's a really good question. Indeed, I didn't look at them for some considerable time. Uh, and I re rewrote them uh, when I went to Bosnia, which would have been, I think, probably three years later, two years later. And I rewrote them then. Uh, and I, 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 I gave them to my brother in an envelope of only to be opened in, in the case that I die type thing with my will and everything else. And I opened them, I probably got them back from him maybe two or three years after the war, something like that. And I opened them. and. Do you know what? Reading them in kind of my house in Hertfordshire with a beer, <laughs> thinking it was really, really, really weird. And I mean, really weird. Uh, and I wish I hadn't, but I did. I just tore them up and put them in the bin. Uh, and I wish I hadn't now because they were so important. They were so of the moment. They were so real. Uh, so, no, I never, ever showed them it. And nobody's ever seen them. And I tore them up. And I, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't done that. Going back to sort of Tofty and, and others as well, you say you, you mm -hmm. don't sort of, um, you, you, you write things as they are rather than sort of yeah. trying to curate it to how everyone uh, remembers it. Mm -hmm. What was it like compared to Lancaster and Spitfire, which are your two previous, yeah, Lancaster and then mm -hmm. Spitfire going backwards. How was it writing this having your experiences your real life experiences compared to writing Lancaster and Spitfire much more difficult much more difficult really because yo uh, a, a hundred times more difficult uh, so when I was writing Spitfire and Lancaster I interviewed uh, I don't want to sound I interviewed I'm gonna, I don't want to sound Charles you're old men and women about their experiences mm -hmm. and I wrote down as they spoke to me and I reflected what they'd said. And many of you know, well, I mean, Spitfire is the classic example. I, I think I spoke to in the end about 40 Spitfire veterans and their families. And I think when the, even just when the book came out, I think there was only two left surviving. Uh, so over an 18 month period and there are now none surviving. Mm. But I knew that I was doing them, uh, I, was, I, was, I was not re representing, nothing that I said they would have been annoyed about. Uh, and it was the same with Lancaster as well. It was so, so different with Tornado because they're my friends. They are the people that I see when I go to the reunion, whether it's in London for the Tornado reunion or uh, when we have our prison. These are my close friends, the people that I trusted with my life. And they trusted me with their stories. And for, I, it was so important for me not to make any errors. Clearly, you would never want to do that when you're writing. Sometimes you do, but you never want to. But never to... Uh, say something that we, they would have said I wish I'd never said that to John I wish I'd never had 
that trusted conversation with John and I've been so so pleased that uh, so I don't think I'm speaking out of turn uh, so um, Kirsty's called me Kirsty Stewart said John I was in tears it's just amazing reading a, a way the way that you have portrayed my experiences my family's experiences and the experience the way that it matches in with Sir John Major's experience General <laughs> Schwarzkopf uh, President Bush and everybody else who she has grown to know and love. And the same with Robbie and the same with uh, Nigel Risdale, who's one of the key characters in the book. So he led all of the major tornado ops. He was a great, uh, great guy, hugely experienced warrior. Uh, and he emailed, he said, John, that's just, I, and for me, it was so great. I feel quite emotional now. He said, it was, it's so gratifying because I have never heard my story told this way. I've never understood what everybody else did. And so I'm so grateful. That, that, to be fair, it's only been out a week, so I've still got, I've got to wait for the <laughs> bang, the baseball buckets. But so far, so far, everybody said that they're, they're pleased the way that it's come out. And thinking about that, um, do you think that the sort of, I'll call it Operation Ground Beat, Desert Storm, Go, Go for 91, whatever. Um, do you think that's a sort of an undertold story in the history of the RAF? Or um, was it just that your undertold. stories in general? I think it was, I'm not sure, I don't know if it was undertold. I think probably 30 years ago, it was told a bit at that time. Mm. I wrote uh, my book with John Peters. Uh, there was another book that came out, I think called Thunder and Lightning, which told the stories of many of the different RAF personnel. But what happened was in the aftermath of that first Gulf War in 1991, the RAF marched on really quickly. The military does this all the time, whether it's the Falklands or Libya, the military marches on really quickly. And so I think the stories were lost in time. Mm. I think the reality of what the people had done. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a classic ex example, Tom. So uh, at the 30th anniversary of the Gulf War in January, I did a series of tweets, daily tweets, about what everybody, you know, this day, this was happening this day. And I got contacted uh, and I, I said about guys, so the first, and I was doing kind of a, a minute by minute for the first two or three days. And I said, uh, uh, eight tornadoes, sorry, 24 tornadoes crossing the border, 200 feet total darkness on terrain following radar, uh, 600 miles an hour. And I got contacted by, I think, three of my good friends in the Air Force ranging in ranks from wing commander to two star <laughs> saying, but John, you are all using night vision goggles. So these are serving RAF personnel. They weren't, they weren't in the Air Force then, but it said, but you were all on night vision goggles. I said, no. <laughs> no, no, we didn't have. There was no night vision goggles. I mean, they were. In, I was ludicrously. They weren't invented. But no, we, we. Some people had a set of night vision goggles, but you couldn't use them in the tornado because they weren't compatible with the cockpit. They weren't compa compatible with ejection. I think one or two people flew with them on the first night and kind of an hour before target kind of picked them up and looked through them like old opera kind of looking glasses <laughs> or something like that but nobody was flying in the darkness at 200 feet 600 miles an hour with night vision goggles and these very senior RAF personnel did not know 
what we had been doing. And that's what I mean by the stories lost in time. People have forgotten what happened. People have forgotten what it was like. This was old fashioned technology, old fashioned technology uh, by today's standards. Back then it was medium level technology, medium range technology, but it was old fashioned technology then. And no, the tornado force was a virgin force. Mm. Nobody, not one single second of combat mission had been flown in a tornado. There was probably, I think, I think probably, I may be misremembering here, but one or two people who'd crossed from the Vulcan to the tornado who had been involved in uh, the Falklands. But in a, in a, not, not, uh, in, not, in the, um, not in the Vulcan raids, uh, as far as I can remember, uh, kind of the victor refueling part of it. Mm. So nobody had any combat experience. And so that first night, we were utter virgins going to the school prom. And it was really quite an extraordinary experience. I suppose that that's quite interesting as well. So it's not only the the human stories that that are sort of lost in time a little bit, but it's also the capability and, and, and the actual thing. Because the tornadoes, they would be, what, GR1s at the time, weren't they? They weren't the GR4 standard. Then. No, so, no, 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 no. So, no, no, no. you know... It, it, that's a perfect example, isn't it? People just assumed you had NVGs, yeah. and, and no, absolutely, absolutely, and not, not even. I was talking about this today. So GL1s and GL1As, the recce guys, obviously, yeah. and the recce guys were doing it on their own. So the recce guys, the recce motto is alone, unarmed, and unafraid, and they, <laughs> their key phrase was one out of three ain't bad because they were on their own. They were unarmed and they were afraid, heading into real danger. Um, but you know that. Uh, the 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 first nights and the 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 moving map in the tornado. So you, most people now think of uh, sat nav. There was no sat nav. It was a an old moving map display that was basically uh, a roll of thirty five millimeter film that went through us that was broadcast onto a screen in the cockpit. It wasn't a there was no digital stuff then, and there was no sat nav. There was no GPS. The navigator, the backseater, was updating the weapons system uh, and the navigation system by using his radar to identify a mast or a coastline. And that updated the weapons system and the nav system. It was, by today's standards, laughable technology. <laughs> and um, something else I noticed, and it was quite nice um, uh, in, in, in this book, that you also touch on um, not only other RAF assets, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jaguars and Buccaneers, but also I think you, you talk about say um, a flight of Italian tornadoes, and yeah. they 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 were uh, on a mission, and I can't remember how many you said they were, but all of them bar one was unable to meet the refueling tank here and, and, and refuel, which was crucial, and so only one was able to to go on, and then obviously you know, I don't think that uh, that fair very no much. no John Mo- no, that was uh, there was eight. Italian tornadoes took off. It was the night of terrible weather. And yeah. it's uh, in the book, I think the chapter is called The Mission from Hell, yeah. where they're trying to refuel, airborne refuel in uh, Thundercloud. Uh, and it's, a, it's just catastrophic. The, what went on, you, you would never do anything like that today. You would, I mean, it would be uh, uh, foolhardy to try to do today. But back then, trying to get the missions done on the first three days of the war were everything that there was. And so, you know, it was a, a really bad, bad night. And eight Italian tornadoes took off. One managed to get to the target. Gianmarco Bellini, my good friend, uh, and Maurizio Calzoni. Uh, and they were shut down. 
uh, and John Marco uh, uh, trans- uh, ended up in uh, in prison with us. Uh, and but there, there was um, uh, people talk about this, and it's interesting. You, you, we might touch on it. People have got this misconception that the RAF were the only people doing low level ops. And that's utter bunkum, balderdash and rubbish. So for the first, I think, three nights, everybody was doing low-level ops. So there's a little bit in the book about a B-52 pilot heading in towards a chemical Mm. weapons factory in northern Iraq. And he's flying at 50 feet, (laughs) not on night vision goggles. He's flying on 50 feet on the radalt and looking out and trying to sense where the shadows are on the ground. And what's the wingspan of a, a B? Is it 180 feet? Am it's I, you, what, something quite crazy. So, it's, so uh, he's flying at 50 feet. Uh, and the A6s, the Americans, were flying yeah. at low level. There were two F-15E strike eagles shot down in the first two days of the war at ultra low level. People have forgotten about all of this. They say, oh, the GR1s were flying. It was nonsense. There were, there, uh, I talk about uh, French Jaguars. There was a four ship of French Jaguars went over a, an airfield at ultra low level in the, the first 48 hours. And one of the French pilots was shot in the helmet by an AK-47 round. So he was hit on a, a low level raid over an Iraqi airfield by a soldier on the ground with an AK-47. And there's a picture, on, I, didn't, I didn't use it, but there's a picture. And the round went through his visor, in once grazed his head, one side of his helmet went out the other side. That's how everybody was at low level. And the notion that people weren't is nonsensical. And it's and it's excellent that that you sort of touch upon those stories as well for for, for precisely that reason. You know, you, you talk uh, about um, Desert Storm, and there's obviously a lot of focus on the U.S. Uh, yeah. shock and awe. Yep. F- not unjustified. And, and shock, then... shock, shock and awe was two thousand three. That was oh, sorry. Um... That's... <laughs> <laughs> the other, the, the, the wrong goal four, um, <laughs> but, but well, it, well, I suppose it was still shocking, or wasn't it? It was, it was an, an extreme, it was bloody of, shocking. For, it was for the people on the ground, power. it was shocking. Yeah, it was. Um, and so, it, it is really nice to hear those stories uh, told because it is um, a lot of focus on mm-hmm. uh, the Americans that night, and yeah. perhaps then in second place, uh, the British and, and particularly the GR ones. But uh, yeah. I've really liked reading about these other exploits um, uh, th- that were taking place. Mo- moving away from the book a little bit, um, I-, I-, I wanted to talk about you, if that's okay. So we sort of, you're talking about Twitter before and, and how you did that sort of Gulf War sequence. And I think you-, you were quite active back in 2016 for the 25th. I think that's actually when yes. I first started. Um, yeah. uh, I think that's when I first found you or started following you. Um you're very active, very entertaining on Twitter. Did that start um, as a way of reaching a wider audience, or do you just enjoy it for the sake of, of what it is? No, look, I, I, I'm not a massive. I, I am active on Twitter, but I, I'm not a massive social media person. And I remember, so this, I think, did you see 25th anniversary? That makes sense. I can't remember exactly where it was. Uh, it was to do with my book, The Red Line. So I don't, I, there's, yeah. there's a, I don't know if there's a copy lying around. I don't know when that came out, but it must have been around 2014, 2015, something like that. And my publisher said, John, you've got to go on Twitter. And I said, I'm not, no, social media is so painful. I'm, not, I'm just not interested. Uh, I ju- and she said, no, no, no. And I said, nobody be, and I remember having this conversation with a marketing director. I said, nobody is going to be interested in what I say. No, it said, see, I said, it's just going to be embarrassing. I mean, there's, there's going to be three people and a dog named Eric following me. 
nobody is going to be interested. And I kind of started and it built up and it built up and it built up. And I, I, I don't know what, how many followers I got. I was 42, 43. I don't know what it is, 42,000 or something. But I use it as, if I'm brutally honest, a marketing tool to talk about what I am doing. But, and I've done a couple of kind of social media lectures on this with other people. The most important thing for me is to be entertaining. If you say, this is what I had for my dinner, or here's a, a picture uh, of my cabbage patch, it's not interesting. <laughs> and so I try to do something that is interesting, not necessarily controversial, though I, I kind of do give my views every now and then. I just try to do something that's interesting, and it seems to, people continue to follow, continue to listen every now and then, Somebody has a pop at me. So yesterday, uh, I went on GB News, the new news channel. Mm. Uh, Simon McCoy, an old, uh, an old um, uh, casual friend of mine, and he said, "John, come on and talk about the new book on my new program." It had only been broadcasting for two or three days, and so I kind of said, "I'm going on GB News to talk about my old kind of with my old drinking chum." Uh, oh my God! You'd think, <laughs> you'd think that I said I was I was going to start murdering kids, and as the part I tried to. I try to, I rarely engage with people who are being really kind of unpleasant, but I did yeah. try and, I did try and say a couple of times, look, firstly, all I'm doing is talking about a book, but they said, oh, it's a, you know, it's a hate-filled uh, channel, and I said, but they've been broadcasting two days, <laughs> I, I, I haven't really seen much of it, but I, I know Simon, I know Alistair Stewart, I know a couple of other people, and from my experience, they're not hate-filled, they might, you might not agree with their view, and that's fine, not agreeing with somebody's view is fine, but yeah, can't, you really, nobody should watch it, because you don't agree with their views. And I was kind of, I was quite taken aback by that yesterday, actually, a, li a, a little bit. And as you know today, Tom, you'd said something about um, the book uh, doing this and the, you got some signed books as prizes. Mm. And somebody tweeted and said, I'd rather use John Nichols' book as toilet paper. And you go, what? So you've literally sat down and decided that you're going to reply. That's what's important to you. Just ignore me. Don't follow me. Don't listen to me. But some people get really het up about social media. And I do, I do worry slightly about that, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I mean, the thing about uh, Twitter, I suppose, is um, people feel sort of obligated to respond to you if it's something they don't like when you're absolutely right. You know, if they don't like what you have, they can go somewhere else. You're not forcing, however, you know, your um, uh, however many thousand followers, tens of thousands of followers, mm -hmm. to sit there and listen to you. They're doing it because they enjoy what you have to say. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd diverge slightly from that because I think everybody has got the right to say your books are rubbish, John Nickel, and some people think they are, and that's fine. And so, if somebody says your books are rubbish, I say, okay, what didn't you like about them, or what would you rather? And that's completely fine. But if you say nobody should read your books because I hate what you say I and you know somebody somebody with quite a uh, I can't remember who it was I, the thing is I don't know these people so they seem to know me or think that they know me but somebody said I am really disappointed in you you have let yourself down what <laughs> you have, I'm I don't know who you are if my mum God rest her soul had said that I would be really worried but you're a Total stranger. Yeah, it sounds like and a geography teacher or something. Yeah, yeah, with a bad exam result. You're disappointed in me. <laughs> so I think I I think that people are 
can completely criticise. As long as it's fair and not un- not a lie, criticise all you like. But you can't say, I don't like what you say, so nobody else should listen. Nobody else should read your books. That's just... I just find that a bit weird. <laughs> well, um, you know, if someone wants to buy your book and send you the money to use it as toilet paper, then <laughs> be- better that, that than better that than, than that would make one of the best social media pictures ever. <laughs> Somebody paying me paying probably twenty quid and having it in the toilet. I, I would love that. I don't want pictures. I don't want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, be careful. Jesus, yeah. no, I don't want. Don't, don't you know, may all your dreams come true. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a curse rather yeah, than don't, it, don't. Um, uh, on, But on, on Twitter, though, I, I'm sort of um, there are a lot of service personnel for, from all all the branches. A lot of ex-service personnel. Some agree with each other. Some don't. Some, you mm-hmm. know, and it's a it's a real melting pot of diverse opinions, which is quite good. I've seen a lot of um, serving personnel on Twitter, particularly in the last five six years, who've really um, become quite open talking about um, mental health issues that they are themselves struggling with and mm-hmm. it seems to me as though social media sort of helps them that they can talk about it and, and with the right sort of cultivation they can have a sympathetic audience <coughs> um, and it, sort of bringing it back into the book a little bit um, it was sort of quite shocking because okay we say you know uh, Op Granby, Golf War One. 30 years ago that's not a long time but things are so different in terms of the complete non-existence of support um, uh, for those who came back who were completely changed people Um, how do you think that sort of has changed in the last couple of years it's i mean it's changed immensely and for the good uh and so you know your first the first part of your question yeah yeah i know Kind of quite a few people on uh, social media have talked about their mental health issues, and I think it's really, really important because for so long, uh, the military and especially the men in the military just didn't talk about it. Uh, you know, you go back to Falklands and nobody talked about it at all, and they had there were some terrible issues came out of that. Uh, and so I think it's really important, and I'm gratified to see people talking about it on social media. Um, for us. Uh, so what was there? Forty-five thousand military British military personnel deployed to the Gulf. Uh, the RAF prisoners of war and the Special Forces prisoners of war had the best uh, medical and mental psychiatric care that you could get. So when we were released from captivity, we were flown not to our families, but we were held captive by psychiatrists. At which most of us. And as it transpires, when I when I did a bit of research to the psychiatrist who was looking after us, I was really bad. I was a terrible <laughs> patient and I railed against this in a big way. But as I acknowledge in the book, it was really, yeah. really important. And it definitely, and I was affected by my experiences. There no was, doubt about there, there was, yeah, I think that was a, a line that really sort of hit me, um, especially as you were saying with the Falklands and men just didn't want to talk about it. Um, and there was a line, I think, and it said, it, it's not it's not um, unmanly to talk about it or something yeah. else. I thought that, that was really, um, not not interesting, but you know, it, it really hit me as a, as a line that just needed to be said. Um, it was, a, um, it was a, a view then, back in the military. The military was a very different place. I mean, so no women were flying. The women were banned from flying because senior people in the 
RAF thought that women couldn't fly, clearly nonsensical. Uh, gay people couldn't serve in the military. They were either thrown out or imprisoned and then throw out, thrown out. And so the, the military was a, a very different place then. I'm not going to criticise it per se, because it was a different time. There was all sorts of different things going on. But it was wrong. There's no doubt about that. And, and our views on post-traumatic stress disorder were wrong. Uh, the notion that talking about it wasn't uh, wasn't good for anybody, and there were senior many senior officers, and we talk I talk about it in the book, met some senior officers who did not want us to have psychiatric care. They didn't want that to happen because they didn't want you know they just wanted to send them home, let them get on with their lives, and it would have been a terrible mistake, a terrible mistake. And so we were lucky, but the other forty five thousand men and women who served out there had nothing. Yeah. So, and, and again, some of the people in the book literally are. Uh, picked up out of the desert or picked up off their base in Saudi uh, or Bahrain and they are put on an RAF transport home they fly back to Bruggen or Marham uh, or Larbrook uh, and they get off the aircraft and they go home to their wives and kids and 50, uh, you know, three, three or four days earlier they were in the midst of deadly fire uh, two weeks earlier they'd watched their friends die and that's just not right. No. We didn't know it then, really, but we do now. And so the military's changed, but we were lucky. We were lucky, uh, although I railed against it. And Gordon Turnbull, the RF psychiatrist, tells the story in the book <laughs> of a young officer, Flight Lieutenant John Nicholl, standing toe-to-toe with Wing Commander Gordon Turnbull, RAF psychiatrist, saying, Sir, this idea of yours is shite. <laughs> no, nobody wants any of this crap. We just want to go home. And have a beer, self-medicate with a beer, and a, I, I wrote, self-medicate with a beer and a curry. That was my plan. How totally ludicrous was that? <laughs> I bet that was really great to write about that in the third person. <laughs> um, and and it was wives and kids as well. I was struck. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Jenny Green set up the RAF Widows Association. I yeah. was struck that that, that was so um, late. I, I thought that was that had been around for. For, for donkeys, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I was really struck that um, that it, it took until then, and sort of that story, quite sad really, of her feeling as though, not by any design, as though she was suddenly out of that exclusive mm. club of support, precisely probably when she needed it the most. It was uh, Jenny, uh, so Bill Green, Jenny's husband, he was OC 27 Squadron at Marham in August 1990. He was going to deploy. He had just been promoted because he was going to a different job. So he was actually a group captain rather than uh, a wing commander. So he was killed in a flying accident. Uh, His body was never recovered from the North Sea. He was killed in a flying accident. And Jenny basically went from being uh, a senior officer's wife to being kind of unwanted on the station and she was uh, asked to move out of her quarter really quickly because understandably at the time there was a new wing commander had to come Mm. in and take over because he had to take the squadron to war Uh, and so she was asked to move out quite quickly she had two teenage kids uh, and she was and you when you read her story she was actually quite hurt not and she is not by design but the RAF needed to move on quickly. Yeah. And setting up the RAF uh, Widow's Association, her fight. And one of the things that comes out in the book, so uh, if, you, if you get your husband's war pension or your widow's pension, depending on what you get, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a bad pay. It's, it's no recompense for losing your husband. But what you can't do is you can't get remarried. Because you're not, if you get remarried, the regulations at the time said, okay, you're just a little lady. You've now got a new man. He can pay for you. 
We don't need to give you your pension. And that was it. So you could sleep with as many men as you like, different ones every night, but you couldn't live with somebody you fell in love with and get married. That's it. That's beyond it's comprehension crazy. now, yeah. isn't it? And she changed that. She changed that law. Uh, and so, again, that part of the story, the, the final chapter of the book, is finding out how everybody was affected by their experiences. And hers, I found, profoundly moving. And her yeah, son, Jeremy, definitely. profoundly moving what they went through in actual fact. And what they um, you know, what they did and, and the movement that they caused as the well. The fight. You know. The fight. They had to fight. Mm. Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to change. They had to fight for the right to fall in love again after your husband or your father had given his life in service. Which, you are not allowed to fall in love again. Which Crackers. is sort of which is sort of ironic as well, given that you know, you, as you said earlier, almost all of you in your you know, your last letters home said, yeah, move "Please on. move on. Please yeah. find someone yeah. else and happiness with someone else." It's, it was it's it was a different inconsistent. It was a different beast back then. Mm. It's moved on. It's still not perfect, but it's moved on. Okay. Well, I, I um, I've only got one further question, and that is that you know, talking about recent years, so I know you've plenty of books over the years, but Spitfire, Lancaster, Tornado in the Eye of the Storm. What's next for John Nichol? Ah, well, uh, <laughs> I, it's an, it's if, a if you're question. allowed to say, no. Well, okay, so first of all, people have said, oh, you must do Hurricane, or you must do um, um, Mosquito, Mosquito, Berlin. yeah. And, I said, and so my answer to that is I can't because my books require me to interview living veterans who could tell me about their experiences. And there are, I think, possibly a, a couple of hurricane ones and a few mosquito ones. And, but they, I can't get the breadth of the stories that allows me to write the books that I write. I could write a book about the mosquito, but it would be another mosquito book. Mm. And go to Amazon if you want that. Go, yeah. you know, go to a military bookshop. People have said, you must write Harrier. Well... There's, Roland White has done Harrier very well in the Falklands. There's been a couple of good Falklands books, so I can't do that. Jaguar can't really do that. Not you know, very, although it was a great aircraft, and I've got some good friends. Not the depths of stories, and the same with Buccaneer. So I'm moving away. I'm going to do something else. It's still aviation. It's still military, but it's quite different. And the contract's not signed yet, so I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> we, won't, we won't grill you any more on that then. We, we won't be baiting breath. Um, but, um, uh, John, it's been absolutely fantastic talking pleasure. to you. It's been um, a great pleasure. And thank you very much for coming on. Tornado in the Eye of the Storm um, is out. Uh, it's June. It's this month. Crikey, it's, it's June it's already. Out, it's, it's out, out now. now. Yes. So, um, I, and having read it, thoroughly endorsed it's fantastic fantastic book um i actually think it complements tornado down quite well um thank you but it's been a couple of years since i read that one but but tornado in the eye of the storm fantastic tome and um uh well worth uh shelling out for uh, shop independent if you can but if definitely not, go, go or, to amazon or, or no no or go, go to your local independent bookshop yeah They've, seriously they, they need you they need definitely. you now go to your local independent bookshop. definitely definitely shop independent where you can um and um otherwise thank you so much for coming on john Nichols. cheers tom thank you dom thank you very much great pleasure thank i've enjoyed it thank you thank you